Boom Mike Productions is in partnership with RPS to present the work of Jack Latham and his Sugar Paper Theories project. This podcast presents the testimonies of Gisley Gudjonsson, Erla Badottier, Dylan Howitt, as well as the curator Mark Rawlings and Jack Latham himself, as they recall the events of the infamous Goodmunder case. The Goodmunder case, also known as the Reykjavik Confessions, is a case concerning the disappearances of Goodmunder and Gefinur Ernesson in 1974 in Iceland. Six people were convicted of their alleged murders on the basis of confessions acquired by false memories. In later years, most Icelanders believe the six were wrongfully convicted. Jack Latham's Sugar Paper Theories project attempts to document and offer different perspectives on chilling events of the Goodmunder case. Throughout the book, you will find detailed photographs and newspaper articles that will leave you with a different insight and understanding into what really happened. First, before we start, could you tell us who you are and a little bit about yourself? Yes, uh, I'm Gisli Hannes Gudjonsson, um, and uh, I'm a clinical forensic psychologist. Uh, I'm an emeritus professor of forensic psychology at King's College London. And before I retired, I was a professor of forensic psychology. And uh, I was the head of the forensic psychology services in the Maudsley and South London Trust. And I worked um, at the Maudsley and at the Institute of Psychiatry, now related to King's, it's all a part of London University, for over 32 years. To an ordinary person, how would you define forensic psychology? Well, if you look at what forensic psychology is all about, the proper translation is pertaining to the court. So forensic psychology, strictly speaking, relates to cases that appear before the courts. But the definition is a bit broader than that nowadays in the sense that forensic psychology also involves people who assess and treat offenders. Um, so it's not just about giving evidence in court and about uh, having evaluated cases, but it's also about working in secure units or working at uh, universities, doing research, doing clinical work. I mean, like, like me, I was not just a forensic psychologist, I started off as a clinical psychologist and then became a forensic psychologist. And then I was the first forensic psychology professor appointed uh, at the Institute of Psychiatry and King's College London. So that's sort of in broad terms what forensic psychology means. Okay, so uh, from your point of view, could you just uh, briefly describe the case? and your involvement with it. Yes, um, the Bulman during Gadefin cases, I mean, I refer to them as two separate cases. Some people refer to them as one case because they were kind of jointly investigated, but I prefer to separate them because they were really separate cases. They were just linked together by the investigators in terms of uh, information that they obtained through interviews with the suspects and witnesses. Um, so th that's really uh, the, the beginning. But 
I first knew about the case in 1976, in the summer of 1976, when I worked as a detective with the Reykjavik Criminal Investigation Police. And I was on the periphery of the case. I wasn't involved in the investigation and I knew little about it. But once Karl Sutz came to work from Germany in the August of 1976, then they set up a task force. And then I learned more because there were more detectives and more people were speaking about the case. So I learned a bit about the case in 1976 when I worked as a detective. And I left Iceland at the end of September 1976, basically for good. I left, I worked in the police and then left and uh, then was doing clinical psychology training in the UK. And I worked and lived in England ever since. Now, so I didn't really know an awful lot about the case at the time. I did not know what was happening behind closed doors. I'd met five of the six uh, people in 1976 because I was doing research for a master's dissertation into lie detection. And uh, that's why I, you know, five of these people were kind of part of my research. So I, I was sort of involved. And then, uh, uh, then I left, as I said, end of September, 76, to go to England and do my clinical training. Then on the 17th of December, 76, I went back to Iceland. And then when I arrived in Iceland, there was a message for me to contact the police. And as a result of that, I gave a lie detector test to one of the people called Gudjon Skarpjensson. And um, the test was given on the 31st of December, 1976. And Karl Sutz, who was directing the investigation, apparently didn't know about the lie detection that I had been performing on Gruyon. And when he got back, I think it was on the 6th of January, I, I left Iceland on the 4th of January, so I think there was about two days before he came back from Germany after Christmas, and then discovered that in actual fact, Gruyon was now very different to what he had been before, because he was now wanting to retract his confession, thinking that perhaps he had nothing to do with it, and that perhaps he needed a lawyer. And the case, according to Karl Suits, was in jeopardy. I didn't know anything about this till 2012. So by my giving William a lie detector test, according to Karl Suits, I almost destroyed the case. And he wasn't very pleased with me uh, because I discovered that in a report he, he, uh, he did um, in January 1976, when in actual fact he was criticizing me for having done the test and also criticizing the officers for having, well, not the officer, but there was a kind of a judge who authorized it. He was criticizing the judge uh, and the judge was soon moved out of the case as a consequence of, of him having been involved in my giving Bouillon a lie detector test. 
Then I did not really hear much about the case. In 1996, Cyber, in actual fact, I think it was in 1997, Cyber Siselski, one of the six, contacted me because he had remembered that I'd given him a lie detector test and, and he was under the impression that the police were covering up the results of the lie detector test, which they were not, because I had the file and I, I met with him and I discussed the results of the uh, lie detector test I'd, I'd done with him in 1976. And then he asked me uh, to help with his case and. Uh, at the time I declined, this case would take too much of my time and I, I, I was in a different country. So, so and, I, and also I was under the impression at the time that the authorities were not ready to do anything to try to correct the injustices that had taken place. There wasn't the motivation or the appetite to actually do anything. That was my sense at the time. And then I did. Then Erdla contacted me about 2001, and I, I said to her, I was concerned because I'd been a detective at the time, so I didn't take uh, the case on uh, when she asked me. And then um, 2011, at the end of September, a journalist came uh, to see me, and uh, they and tricked me. Runa Leifson's daughter, one of the six who had subsequently died in 2009, and then Saiva died in 2011. So, uh, and, and then um, uh, Christine and Helga, who came, the two women, wanted me to look at the diaries of Trikvi Runa, uh, and there were about 300 pages in terms of material. I then looked at the diary and uh, then spent about two and a half hours going through, and I couldn't read it all in detail because I didn't have enough time, because the journalist and the daughter were going back to Iceland that same evening, so they just came for the day. So I looked through uh, what I needed to look through and realized that there was a lot more to this case than I had actually known or believed. And the voice that came through the diary was that here was an innocent man. This is a diary made in prison, right? Absolutely. Hmm. An innocent man in custody, writing a diary, really being incredibly distressed, proclaiming his innocence, and then saying he was coerced by the police. And when I read the diary, I was in no doubt that it was authentic. I was in no authentic because of the way it was actually written. It was written like from the heart. Yeah, it was, was written yeah. spontaneously. This wasn't a book or a diary that was being written for any other purpose except to help him cope in the prison. He was writing what he was doing. He was writing his feelings and, and so forth. And it was all spontaneous. 
when I checked it against other information about like who was visiting him and he said this person came to visit me and so forth, I was able subsequently to check and corroborate what he was actually saying. But at the time, I was certainly of the view that the diary this is authentic and he uh, had suffered an awful lot in custody that the solitary confinement uh, was very distressing to him and a lot longer than ha he had thought. So I said uh, uh, to the journalist, and this was recorded in my house, basically me saying that having reviewed the diary, the case should be reopened should be looked at because it raised a number of issues that really needed to be addressed. So uh, within a week of me going on television in Iceland, announcing that there was something fundamentally wrong and that I was prepared to assist, I had a phone call from the Ministry of the Interior who asked if I would be prepared to act as an advisor to a committee, a work group that he was setting up to investigate the case and, and we did that and uh, completed our work in March 2013 that recommended that the case needed to be reopened, that there were unreliable confessions. Uh, and then uh, I uh, after the report, nothing was happening uh, about the case, and I happened to be uh, at the BBC uh, being interviewed about uh, recovered memories and memory distrust. So I said to the broadcaster that there was a case in Iceland that actually very much showed real-life cases of the memory distress syndrome. And I said that I would send them some material that I actually I translated. I didn't hear anything for six months. And then what happened, about six months later, the broadcaster contacted me and said that they'd got funding. And they now in, had the person called Simon Cox, who was going to be doing radio programs and a website. So if you look at Reykjavik, the Reykjavik Confessions, is on the BBC website. So I was interviewed by uh, the uh, Simon Cox was involved um, and uh, another person who, uh, who who originally got me sort of involved in the case, but it was really Simon Cox who was doing the programmes. And uh, I stated uh, a bit about the case and uh, what um, I thought the problems were, then other people became interested and there was a researcher and um, eventually uh, out of thin air was done. So they recorded out of thin air that was then, I think, supported by, by, the, by the BBC. In fact, it was shown on the BBC and then a year later, well, I think it was about a year later or something, they were shown on Netflix. So it's still on Netflix. Yeah, that's how we watched it. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, uh, and then uh, what happened is that 
nothing was really happening in the case in 2013. We're going into 2014 and Jack is now sort of wanting to do his book. And uh, I wanted to collaborate with him because it was something different. And I liked Jack. I liked his integrity. I liked how careful he was with his photography. And I loved working with him. It was a joy. We had a lot of fun. And it was something different, looking with a, working with a photographer. I mean, it was something that I hadn't done and something that was very special to me. And, and, and then, so I then decided to write a book about the case to make sure that all the facts and a proper analysis had been done of the material. And the book was kind of focusing on what does forensic psychology science tell us about the confessions that were actually given by these people. And the book was published in 2018 called The Psychology of False Confessions, 40 Years of Science and Practice. And then what I did was actually to talk about the early cases in the UK, including the Birmingham Six and the Guildford Four and other cases, and actually I've had six leading cases, early cases in the UK. And I uh, then decided that was the background. And then I would talk about the development of the science. And then I would talk for the, in the rest of the book about the Icelandic cases. And my conclusions were quite hard hitting that there had been a, a miscarriage of justice, that these um, confessions were unreliable. And the book was published a few months before the Court of Appeal, it's over a year ago. So 2018, the book was published, and it was published a few months before the Supreme Court hearing went ahead. So I think- I think because of your book then? No, as I understand it, it helped the lawyers to understand the case better and they were able to use chapters on their client to further their legal arguments. So I think the book, if anything, helped, but that was not why the appeal was allowed. There was a criminal cases re review commission. They call it an actual fact uh, in Iceland, court cases review commission. And, as a re uh, and they looked at the a lot of evidence and reviewed the case and uh, and uh, having uh, spent about two, two, between two and three years looking at the case and the report from the working group that I was a part of, they decided there were grounds to appeal. Later, the case was heard in the Supreme Court and the convictions of five people for involvement in the disappearance of Wilmundur and Geirfinnur, they were quashed. But Erdler's conviction for perjury, and also two of the other people were also charged with perjury, are still standing. So how did forensic psychology affect the case from your point of view? I think that the effect of the science of forensic psychology should not be underestimated. I'm in no doubt 
that if it hadn't been for the development of the science in related to confession evidence and false confessions, I knew the science was sufficiently solid to be able to apply it and understand what went wrong in these two Icelandic cases. So forensic psychology had a critical role to play. And like with all cases and miscarriages of justice, it isn't one person that makes the difference. It is a team. It's a team, it's a number of people like the media, people, pressure groups, and, uh, and then you get journalists and, and, and expert psychologists and lawyers. So you get kind of a lot of different people being involved in helping to acquit people. So it's, you know, it's very rarely that you could say it's one person. I see my role as having been very significant, but I had one role to play but other people had their role to play, and we all came together to produce something that eventually led to the acquittal of these five men. So is forensic psychology admissible as evidence? Of course it is. Is it? I testified in, 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 in many cases. I've worked on about 500 cases, well, about 500 cases over, over many years, and I uh, testified in, in about 150. And I testified in, 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 on people on death row in the USA. I've helped to stop three executions in the USA. I've testified in Norway and Israel and in Iceland and Scotland and Ireland and you know, Northern Ireland. And I've testified in many, many different countries. And it's all about bringing the science into the evaluation. So I'm very pleased that I was able to take a part in the early development of the science, then help to develop the science, and then help to apply the science to cases. And what I've done is to learn from cases. Most of my work and my research as a professor of forensic psychology at King's College has been stimulated by cases, by real life problems because there was a question. And then I did the science, did the research, and then that research was then applied to cases. And so I see my work very much as being driven by cases and the need to do something about evaluating people properly and then doing research and the research then this was stimulated by cases, and the results of research was then fed back into practice. So it's an interplay. So for me, I wasn't just a scientist. I wasn't just uh, an academic. So I, I think that was my basically strength. Basically, a practitioner. It was that I dealing was with real life a practitioner, and then clinical and using my academic hat, and then an research. academic. And I combined. So I think these. that was my strength. By it was that uh, I was into a practitioner, combine them, and clinical and a forensic psychologist, and then an academic, and I combine these by uh, into practice. I combine them and applied them to my work. 
So uh, how and why did the confessions change? Uh, false confessions, I guess. Well, why did they change? Yeah. Yeah. Why did they you know, change in the terms of what? Change, uh, can you be more specific about uh, how, how you they, think they changed? How were they pressured into confessing? So the confessions, we could talk about confessions changing. That means that you have a confession and that changes to something else. Yeah. What you're talking about is denials followed by confessions, okay. aren't you? Yeah. So that's something different. So in actual fact, there were, everybody had denials in the beginning. It's not like somebody just said when the police interviewed them, I was involved in this murder and, and I know what happened. That that was not the case. It was a question of each person being interrogated and kept in solitary confinement and then, and then made to believe that the only way out of their predicament was to uh, follow the hypothesis of the police or somehow say something that they thought the police wanted. And uh, so it was really, I believe, a question of people being in a predicament that had been created by a lot of uncertainties, and then, and and they didn't know how long they might be kept in solitary confinement. It might be up to two years, and then trying to help the police, giving confessions that they thought might help them to be released, because after all, if they were seen to be cooperative, they might be released. But the problem is that they gave statements and confessions. And then these kept changing all the time because when they checked that confession with someone else, they give a different story. And then they tried to corroborate what people said and they couldn't corroborate anything that people had said. So there were clearly fundamental problems with the story, but the story kept changing over that period as the police were trying to get a story that was sufficiently coherent to actually be taken to court and get these people convicted. And that's why they got Karl Sutz, the German uh, ex-police officer in to help to consolidate the confessions because the confessions were a total mess. They were very incoherent, very unbelievable. So it was a question of trying to increase the consistency, which is partly done because if you get people to agree on account, then people may give more coherent statements or more similar statements. But it doesn't mean to say the statements are actually true about what had taken place. Is what the police doing, uh, the solitary confinement stuff the police were doing, was that illegal? Well, um, I think keeping people in solitary confinement for all that time, I think the law with regard to solitary confinement was a bit vague in those days. Yeah. So I think that was the problem. There were no clear guide, guidelines that the police, they were using like two years as a frame of reference. But the law didn't stipulate you can only pe keep people in custody for a month. So because the law was vague with regard to uh, to. Con solitary confinement, that was what left people very vulnerable. Um, the law was good, but the law should have protected people if it had been applied. 
but the law was not followed. And that was a fundamental mistake. Not following the law in terms of interviewing and people, keeping people for months or two years or even more in solitary confinement, it's not, uh, those are not condi good conditions for people giving reliable testimonies. So speaking about that, um, what was your opinion on the final outcome of the both cases? Yeah, the outcome on the 27th of September last year was good in the sense that the Supreme Court acquitted these five people of any involvement in the actual cases in, in terms of uh, the disappearance of Wilmer and Gerfinner. So they, they were acquitted. That, so that was good. Uh, and and uh, it was good that uh, they didn't specifically say, we still believe these people did it. But what was bad, and uh, a serious mistake in my view, is that the Supreme Court didn't say, this is what went wrong. So in actual fact, all they did was to acquit these people and say that the special prosecutor and the Court Cases Review Commission had decided there were grounds for appeal. They were just accepting those. So what was missing was really the courts uh, explaining, the court explaining what had gone wrong and how these things could be prevented from happening in the future. That was lacking, and that is still lacking, and I think that was a serious mistake. But in a way, it is like a face-saving thing. It protects the establishment, because if they had really stated what had gone wrong, then questions would have been asked about the methods that the police were actually using at the time. So I see a lot of cases where things the court goes this far, but for face-saving reasons, they can't go the whole way because that would mean that the establishment is to blame for what took place. It's called the blame game. I mean, there's a word for this, blame game. So is uh, forensic science becoming more um, prominent in court cases now? Yes, definitely. I mean, when I started in 1980, I was doing cases uh, and uh, making sure that I was properly instructed to do cases, not just a psychiatrist asking me to help him with his report or her report. I wanted to be independently instructed. So I was taking on cases from early on. And when the problem came up, I was applying science. And also I was doing research to further our understanding. In one case, for instance, there was a man who had been convicted of drunken driving and he said he had the reasonable excuse for failing to give a specimen because he was a blood phobic. And, um, and uh, I tested him using uh, uh, sort of measuring his heart rate through a polygraph testing experimentally whether or not he was a genuine blood phobic because I knew from the science 
that blood phobia ha gives a different physiological response to any other phobia. That means when you show someone a stimulus, like a bottle of blood or a syringe, the heart rate drops and that's why people faint. It doesn't go in, it may drop and then go up. And I demonstrated that this man had a genuine blood phobia, and that led to his acquittal and that was a leading case. So I was able to apply the science to many different, not just about confessions, but about other areas of forensic psychology. So forensic psychology is a lot broader than just confession evidence. And I was doing it from many different angles. So forensic psychology, the way I used it was to know the science, know how to apply the science and knowing how to develop the science and then bring it back into practice. Uh, so the people who didn't commit the crimes, uh, who were you know, convicted for murdering one of the people, are you sure that they were didn't actually do it and believe they did? Or are you, how are you not sure that they did do it and then through all of the solitary confinement told themselves that they were innocent and that yeah. they did commit the crimes? Well, what I knew for, know for certain is there is absolutely no evidence on which to convict these people. There was absolutely no evidence that they had anything to do with the disappearance of these two men. So if you look at the evidence, there is no evidence to link them to the cases. If you look at their statements, they're all over the place. They keep changing all the time and people, different people are, are involved, allegedly involved, giving different accounts. You see that nothing tangible came from these interviews. And it was like, just the, it, everything was moving all the time. So when I look at all the evidence, including the confessions, I'm confident that these people were not uh, admitting to things that actually done. So, so uh, and it's difficult, you know, you, you can prove innocence by DNA, for instance, and I've been involved in a few of those cases. You can't prove innocence in this case because there is no DNA. So all I can say is that on a basis of all the evidence I have and my careful analysis of the case, I am confident that five of the six people developed the memory distrust syndrome and started believing that perhaps they had done something and then with the help of the police tried to reconstruct what allegedly took place. And that's my view uh, on that. The one, Saivar, didn't have the memory distrust syndrome, I think because he didn't trust the police. He didn't trust them sufficiently, at least, to accept what they were suggesting. But his confessions were coerced due to the way he was interrogated and the length of the interrogation and the solitary confinement and the conditions in solitary confinement. So, yes, I, I do believe that there has been a miscarriage of justice. And I do believe there is absolutely no evidence that any of these people have anything to do with the disappearance of these two men. How do you think this case has affected criminal justice in Iceland? Well, I don't think um, 
it has really affected justice in Iceland because the best way of affecting justice in Iceland is for the Supreme Court to say, this is what went wrong and this, this is what we can learn from it and we want to do better next time. They haven't really done that. So what has happened is that there is now a better understanding about false confessions. There is understanding that do happen. There is also an understanding that people can have false memories, that police can manipulate people, suspects, to give confessions that are not true. So there is greater awareness, and it is something that they probably never wanted to confront. Because it's always easier to sacrifice people than accepting that the police got it wrong or the criminal justice system got, got it criminal justice system got it wrong. So it's always easier. So there is a tendency, wherever I've gone, there is always a tendency to protect the establishment. And sometimes, you know, you, it's, the establishment can't be protected because the establishment has to accept they make mistakes. And unless they accept those mistakes and try to learn from them, they don't progress. They're still in denial. So I think, in as far as Iceland is concerned, I'm not sure the establishment has learned an awful lot about this case, uh, about, you know, uh, in terms of impact. If you look at impact, is it going to impact in terms of future cases? It might be in the sense that the judges might be more skeptical, uh, but... In, I, I know from other countries that that you have to learn from the mistakes. If you just keep denying the mistakes, then there is little change within the criminal justice system. So I think, as far as Iceland is concerned, more lessons need to be learned. They need to accept they made the mistake. They need to review what mistakes were made and try to make sure these mistakes don't happen again. Do you think we ever will? Miscarriages of justice will happen again. Mm. Miscarriages of justice happen because everything has a human element and people make mistakes. People believe systems. Uh, uh, so I think, yes, miscarriages of justice do happen, but the science, forensic science and forensic psychology and better interviewing techniques can help to make sure that the police arrest and convict the right people. Thank you, Gisley, and thank you for listening to episode three of the Sugar Paper Theories podcast. This episode was interviewed by Maya Davis and Joe Slater, recorded by Jasper Dorso, music by Paige Brimble, and produced by Jake Gardner. This is a Boom Mic production in association with the Royal Photographic Society. Tune in for the next episode, where we sit down with Mark Rawlins, curator of the Sugar Paper Theories exhibition at the Royal Photographic Society.